Advisor Innovation is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm and a top three RIA custodian, LPL is 100% dedicated to advisor success. We look forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For more information and show notes, visit go.lpl.com backslash advisor innovation. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast, where we hold informal but hopefully informative chats with the individuals who are changing the business of financial advice and moving it forward to create better outcomes for clients. I'm David Armstrong. I'm the editor of wealthmanagement.com, and today I'm joined by Greg Friedman, the founder and CEO of Private Ocean and a technology entrepreneur, and Cynthia Greenfield, who is the chief experience officer for Private Ocean. Greg, Cynthia, thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks for having us, David. It's going to be great. Greg, I should also note, is the 2018 winner of our RIA Leader of the Year Award at WealthManagement.com for his work there at Private Ocean, and currently a judge for the award. So thank you, Greg, for your service there. But the occasion to speak to both of you here today is you guys just recently published a book, Integrating Culture in Successful RIA Mergers and Acquisitions. No doubt, RIA mergers and acquisitions at a fevered clip. You cite some statistics there in the book. I know that barely a day goes by without one or two announcements coming out that a firm has been acquired or is acquiring another firm. Greg, Private Ocean, you've certainly gone through the process a few times. And in this book, I, I you're pretty candid on the successes and failures you've experienced. But first, I just want to clarify one thing, because I've always had trouble with the concept of culture when it comes to organizations, particularly organizations where people get paid to do a job. Culture just seems like one of those vague and spongy words that can mean whatever anyone wants it to mean at whatever different time. Help me out. And I don't know if Greg or Cynthia, you want to kick this one off. What exactly do you mean by culture when we're talking about an RIA firm? Well, we both probably have a lot to say about that. It's that thing that you don't see. It is spongy. It's what happens when nobody's looking. It's how people treat each other. It's, yeah, it's actually more important than money. It's more important than uh, so many things. It's literally what determines in most instances, when people get up in the morning, how they feel about where they're going. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah, I would even go further to say it, it also can really drive the success of your company. And, and especially during a merger and acquisition, if people are feeling good about being there, feeling that they belong, wanting to join a shared mission and understanding uh, what their work together is to accomplish, it can really you know, help things go a lot more smoothly. Yeah, one thing I would add to when I think of culture, I'm actually not judgmental about types of cultures, but I would use this example to, to clarify the benefits of having a unified culture. There's uh, one, one type of culture might be very command and control. Somebody's telling people, this is exactly where you're going. This is exactly what you need to do. Here's how you need to do it. You know, just lots of that. And if that is a strong you know, unified culture, they will attract people that need that, right, to be successful. There are other cultures that are very collaborative, for example, right? That kind of thing. So when I think about culture, it's what is that, what is that environment? And, and then if that environment is, well, unified and, and consistent around that, it can be incredibly successful, right? There's different types of companies that do great things, and they're very different places to work. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, I'm talking about organizational culture, which seems to 
be a, a key thing in understanding, you know, who you hire, uh, how you hire, who you bring on board, who you work with, et cetera, et cetera. You guys wrote about this in the context of mergers and acquisitions between RIA firms. And I'm just wondering if you could give me some idea what most RIA firms maybe get wrong about the culture question when they're approaching M&A. Well, again, I think we both have a lot to offer on this. I would just start by saying that what happens in a transaction, and we've done private oceans, the result of a merger, and then we've done two acquisitions. What tends to happen is two things. One is it's really easy early to think that you're speaking the same language and saying the same things and everything kind of looks the same and get real excited about the possibility of, wow, together we're going to be amazing and incredible. And it quickly turns into what's the deal and the structure and, and the money and how's it going to work. And, you know, people get real into that. And what's missing or what can go awry pretty quickly on the other side of the deal is these mergers and acquisitions are my joke is having its partnerships. And my joke is it's, you know, marriage without the sex. I mean, it's a real, it's a real coming together. However you call it, whether you call it a merger or an acquisition or anything else. And so one of the things I, I always advise people is if you're in talks, if you're in discussions with another firm in some capacity, spend about 80% of your time on who are the people do you like them? Do you get along with them? Are, are, what's the, is there a common vision? Do you enjoy you know, being around them? All those kinds of things. And 20% on deal structure instead of 80% on deal structure and money and terms and conditions, right? And then 20% on, oh yeah, we went to a dinner and we get along, right? Yeah. And I would add that I mean, mergers are really just an exercise in change management and how a leadership of a company conducts and leads a team through that change is a great reflection of their culture. So it's something to really pay attention to when you're going through that process. How are people communicating with you? Is it transparent? Is it just informative? How do they treat each other? How do they talk to each other? You can tell a lot by just observing and listening and watching the process of a merger and how things are, you know, how things are communicated to, to your, the new team and to the new leadership. Right. Yeah. And that's on the, the backside of a deal, right? As the merger is coming together and the teams are integrating and, and you know, there's a lot of change that happens around that and understand open communication and all. Uh, but I was interested in you talk about even before you broach the topic of merging or acquiring a partner or, you know, some kind of business deal, that the discussions that you have in the weeks, maybe months, maybe mm-hmm. years prior really yeah. sets the groundwork. And I think Cynthia, in the book you were, Greg gives you kudos for being the person in the room who can read the unspoken signals, you know, that are coming from yeah. the potential partners. What do you mean by that? Is, you say that what's onset is often as important as what's said in those initial overtures, those initial meetings. And I prefer what is said. I mean, what is unsaid is very important. Watch body language. Like just what I was describing, watch how people are treating each other. Watch what is shared. Watch what is said when someone's not in the room and then when they are in the room. It just, it offers a lot of insight into how 
people operate together. But I think what is what's maybe more valuable is in those early conversations, even before the close of a deal, is to ask questions for people to really define what is what their values are, what their missions are, get to the nitty gritty, get them to really express what those words mean, ask for examples, ask for how that shows up in their firm and in their company. Because like Greg said, we can all use the same word and think it means the same thing. But what you're, you're wanting is to have people really be open about what that looks like. And, and it can be very eye-opening because there can be one of the great words I like to think of is, oh, we client services of top important to us. And I think probably every wealth manager says that, but really dive down and, okay, well, what does that look like? How do you show that? When do you know it's not working? What do you do when there's, you know, a snag in the road or an obstacle that comes up in your client service? How is that handled? So just asking a lot of good questions is very revealing and really important. David, I would add, Cynthia is a certified coach. And one of the things, and I've had a lot of coaching, executive coaching. And one of the things that, that, I've been encouraged over the years to do that I don't see a lot of people doing is it's really this simple. It's listening to that little voice. What is really easy to do in any of these situations is to get pretty quickly starry-eyed about possibility or problem solving. Okay, I'm going to merge because it solves this problem or whatever. And they start rationalizing this other aspect if other things look real attractive. And I think people in their heart of hearts and their little voices know as things are going along. And the deeper you get into conversation about, again, merging or coming together, the harder, the more you've invested, right? You've invested time and you're kind of down the road. And I would just encourage people to not dismiss their little voices because their little voices number one, don't suppress them because <laughs> they'll also get louder, but address them. And, and, and if it gets loud enough, don't be afraid to pull the plug because one of the benefits we have as an industry is there are so many great options and opportunities, including not doing anything. I, I don't, I'm not in the camp that says everybody has to merge and everybody has to get acquired and you need to be huge. I think that's, that's a decision you, you need to make for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And something my, my father always taught me when I was growing up is that people show you who they are. And that's never more true than during a merger. And you're going to see people under, you know, kind of a stressful situation sometimes or having difficult conversations. And it's really important to watch how they conduct themselves how they communicate, how do they behave when things are stressful? Because as understood, an actual merger is a stress on a company. Yeah. And it also strikes me that this is something a firm should probably do regardless, because I've got to believe, and, and I do not run an RIA, I've never been involved in an M&A transaction, but I've certainly written about a lot of them and studied quite a few, that many firms out there don't have really an idea of their own culture, right? I mean, everyone has a culture, every organization has a culture, but whether or not the firm principals, particularly the smaller boutique are aware of the culture, perhaps, is that a problem that you come across? 
I think you're dead on. I mean, I'm part of study groups. I know a lot of my friends run companies, you know, and they're good people. And they, a lot of them have very successful businesses. I just would say this, not, not anything about others, but I would say this at private ocean, starting with me, not only do I think it's a responsibility, but I think about it a lot. And then I'm talking about it a lot. Cynthia is critical and, and central. We talk about it a lot. Cynthia, how do we want, you know, what do we want to do here? For example, going into pandemic and during pandemic, and we're all going home and whatever, so much conversation and thought went into how do we want to keep the group together? How do we support people? How do we want to, all those kinds of things, right? Well, that creates culture right? That, that literally in and of itself is a big part of what culture is. Now, it's fair to say and true, culture can also be, look, you're paid well, you know what your job responsibilities are, get it done, and we'll have a Christmas party, and you'll get an annual bonus, and what's the big deal? And that happens. <laughs> I mean, those are extremes, right? But that happens, and that's a culture, yeah, and we've done exercises, you know, not even around some of the mergers and acquisitions we've done, but just as, as retreat uh, offsite where we've brought everyone together, where we, we have a facilitator and we actually go through the exercise of people making lists of what, what they think is most important in working at Private Ocean, what is most valuable about working at Private Ocean. And that just creates a wonderful, you know, word map with a lot of words. And then you start to kind of bucket those words, because I'm sure many of them are similar, and really work on the definition of those words. And that hopefully that the outcome of that is your mission statement, or what we also did were our guiding principles, where we identified specifically who we are, what we do, what we value, and what our goals are. And that's something that we actually created plaques and there. It's on every single desk of every person in the office. And it's something that we refer to monthly at our all hands, definitely annually at our retreat meetings. And it is kind of our North Star for everything that we, that we purposely work towards, the goals that we set. Yeah, that's great. And, and that... Uh... You guys are very deliberate about it and, uh, and cognizant of it. I gather most firms aren't as such. Greg, maybe you could tell me from some of your experience, uh, you know, first, I think, with, was it Salient and early on to create Private Ocean? And then later, there was a couple of other mergers. Where does it go wrong? Like, in what area do cultures clash, you know, in your experience most between RAs coming together? Where does it go wrong? Is it just the way that, the, the way that people treat administrative assistance or... How often they want to, you know, get together for offsites, or where's the clash come in? Honestly, the clash can be everywhere, which is one of the reasons why we actually wrote the book. We were asked to because we realized, I mean, there's not out, there's not a lot out there on this topic, right? It's sort of like there's tons of material on deals, there's tons of material on, on you know, that kind of thing, and then M and A in general, but you know, where can it go wrong? It can go wrong everywhere. The reality is, is that it's interesting. And again, an executive coach taught me this early on. If you have 10 people in a company and you hire somebody, there's an immediate change to culture. So culture is a living, breathing, evolving thing always. So when you ask that question, David, of, you know, where does it go wrong? Or there's a million 
breaking points. There's a million opportunities. So, right. So it's all in how you go at it. So the way we think about it is simply this. When private ocean became private ocean, that's probably the best example I, I can point to. It was Friedman and Salient. We had two, we actually had, you know, pretty different cultures. And I didn't really know enough about any of this stuff. I mean, this is, this is where everything on the surface looked great. We throw us together. The deal made sense. We looked on the surface like we were doing the same things. As Cynthia pointed out, we said all the right words. Oh, client service is important to you. Client service is important to me. You know, right? All this, we value the same things. And then we got together. And the way I would describe Friedman you know, culture was we were incredibly open, lots of collaboration, lots of sharing of information. It was a light environment, meaning humor is, is important to me, if you don't already know that, David. And so I'm always joking around. And I, my attitude is if people aren't having fun, then it's not fun. And that's no good. Salient was serious, academic. It was like a, a library, right? I mean, nobody spoke. Every, the doors were shut. It was just, a, you know, and, and again, no judgment. It is not, I, I'm just saying it was just really different, right? So we bring this together and realize, well, I realized, wow, this is really different. So it took a lot of work and it took a lot longer bringing all that together a lot of people didn't make the journey because what happens is the culture is changing and evolving and wow, you know, it's really different. So a bunch of people went somewhere else and that was fine. And we landed where we needed to land to avoid that is why we wrote the book to avoid those, that kind of, because in retrospect, now I realized that could have been very different with a lot of proactive work. And literally, that's what we talk about doing. It's what Cynthia mentioned. It's bringing people together early. It's, it's including and helping people change management, right? Helping people make the journey so that they feel like, I mean, somebody may self-select out, but it certainly shouldn't be, you know, a lot of people. It shouldn't be real painful and it shouldn't be real negative. And that happens. I, I can tell you anecdotally, I've heard this from so many firms, you know, being acquired, going into these firms, first year's horrible, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't understand why that has to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's such a, do you think if you, knowing what you know now about firm culture and how much work it was going to be, would you have still done that deal? Which deal? Uh, uh, the, the salient deal, Friedman and Associates and salient. Oh, I have no regrets. Yeah. I, and I love what we've become and all that. And again, I have no negative judgment about who salient was. They were just different and we could have handled it all better. I think is my point, right? I, I think, I think it could have been a lot better three years. Those first three years than what ended up happening. And I want to give credit everybody on both sides. I say, you know, but I mean, here's a great example on that merger that I would point to that I would never do today and I would never do again. We were about three or four miles apart geographically, literally. And so we were north up the freeway, right? And for probably, I don't know, even into past, well past a year, we referred to ourselves as the north and south. Now, when I make that reference, any history buffs on the, you know, that's the civil war. 
So subliminally and subconsciously, I'm creating the civil war. I'm like the North and South and blah, blah, blah. And, and everybody was talking that language. And right. So what did we learn? So when we did the acquisition and, and Lakeview and Seattle and all that stuff, we so intentionally were careful about our language and it was became very inclusive and very we are we, <laughs> we, 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 right? So that's an example of with different approach, you can have much quicker and better and, you know, easier outcomes. Yeah. And, and David, what's funny is I was actually the first hire after Private Ocean was created from you know, Salient and Friedman. So I came in not really having a uh, strong affinity for either, as Greg refers them, to the North or the South. It was just the way it was. I started, you know, at, at this specific point. And we found that as time went on and more people came on board, that also really helped assimilate us better because all of a sudden you have these fresh eyes that don't have a loyalty to, oh, we always did it this way here. There were people who were open to change and maybe even offering a third way of doing things that was better than either of the two existing. So it did something, as Greg said, culture is something that is a living organism that is always evolving. Yeah, that's interesting. And so what I'm hearing from you is that uh, two different cultures can come together successfully if the if there's uh, understanding and intent around creating something uh, post-merger, right? Just seeing a different firm that you might be interested in acquiring or being acquired by, just because there's a different culture there at that firm doesn't necessarily scrub the deal. You just have to be uh, aware of what you're in for. Is this accurate? Yeah, I, I say it this way. When I think about this, you know, all this M&A going on, I think that many, many, many of these that we're not hearing about experience quite a bit of turnover, staff turnover. They experience a lot of things that, that just, I've talked to all my investment banker friends and, you know, it's like this hush whispered, yes, it happens. And I, maybe I'm Pollyannish or whatever, but I don't think it has to be that way. And, and so, you know, we've done some of these where it hasn't been that way. And, and I just think that you can get back to business because this stuff is very distracting, no matter how you look at it, it's taking away from, you know, right. It's, it's distracting to the business when you're in it. And I think that can be much better minimized by doing some of the things that Cynthia and I are talking about in this book and certainly makes it more enjoyable in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And also I think you're, you're pretty candid about the fact that not everybody will fit in with the culture and that's okay. And it's okay to lose people. It's okay to part ways with people uh, who don't fit into a culture. Yeah. It took me a while to come around to uh, that happens whether you do M and a or not. Right. So when you're a four person company and, and everybody's wearing 96 hats and, you know, you go to lunch every Thursday and you're all real tight. And then five years later, you're 22 people and you're doing your thing along the way. Some people go, I like this at five people. I don't like us at 22 and I'm leaving. Right. So it happens no matter what, right. Some people just don't want to make those journeys, but when M and a happens, that can happen on steroids, right. That can happen at a much bigger, faster clip without some, I think, proactive 
intention to try to. And, and I might even take it a step further. And it, we've actually, and we talk about this in the book, it's actually to any, everyone's benefit if you put, give people permission to talk about that, to talk about how they're struggling to fit in and to make it a nor- normalize that conversation. Of course, you don't want to lose everybody, but you also want people to be able to express what's working, what's not working. And of course, if there's an opportunity to make it better for them, to, to put them on the right seat on the bus, or to say, you know, we support you and and you finding what you what you need in your next step in your career. So I think that's a really that's a wonderful way to approach it because it's not this dark little secret or these murmured conversations, these whispers in the hallway about someone's unhappy or someone's miserable. It's on the table. Yeah, David, for the vast majority of people in a company, the vast majority, and sometimes all the way up to the owner founder, the biggest issue with being acquired is, well, where do I fit? If I'm suddenly, right now I wear nine hats or three hats or six hats, and suddenly I'm being acquired by a company that has 45 people that do exactly what I do. Am I now going to be so put into something where, while here I'm a big fish in a little pond, I'm suddenly in the ocean and they've got a million sharks and a million guppies and a million whatever, where do I fit in that? That has to be addressed. I mean, the point Cynthia is making, I mean, if you can effectively help people through that first six months, year, whatever, in a way that, that, you know, it's a journey as opposed to just something behind closed doors, I'm not sure, that kind of thing, then you have, I mean, we all recognize it's hard to get talent. It's hard to hire people. It's hard. You know, nobody's bursting at the seams with, I have too much talent and I have too many, right? We all need people. And we're constantly recruiting at every level, trying to get enough talent. So, so you, you want to keep people, but the question is, how do you do it? And I think a lot of this is what we're talking about. I mean, I think a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want to keep people, but also isn't there a, a danger of trying to, as a, as an owner, as a principal, or as a manager, trying to be all things to all employees, trying to, you know, fit the working style of all your employees, trying to, yeah. uh, you know, make every employee, you know, fit into the overall pattern when maybe they just, they, they don't, and they prefer a different kind of. No, I guess I'm not advocating that. What I'm advocating though, is open, candid conversation, include them in the conversation early And it's, again, this is a coaching concept, but when people don't have a story or a narrative, they make one up. And when they make one up, it's never good. And it's never positive. It isn't. I mean, people don't go, wow, you know, I just know that this is going to be amazing, right? So give them enough information and enough, right? Enough exposure to now. I mean, clearly in some M&A situations, yeah, jobs are eliminated or whatever. And sometimes in the bigger company, there are opportunities. Great. Then be talking to them about that. And sometimes there aren't. But but again, what I'm advocating is not cave and give in to everybody and figure out how to just be all things to all people. What I'm saying is, you know, treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And you have a much better chance of keeping the people you need to keep and then having the people you don't keep at least not out on Yelp or 
well, not DL, what's that horrible yeah, site that just rips on your glass door yeah. or whatever, yeah. just inappropriately ripping on you. I mean, that stuff, believe it or not, that stuff ends up mattering. <laughs> we'll read that stuff. So. So you, you've been through this process in a couple of different ways. And, and the reason that I'm interested in this book now, because I think with the merger and activity that we're seeing now, it's much more, I think, much less two equals kind of coming together as the way maybe it was when uh, Friedman and Associates and Salient uh, came together and more big enterprise acquiring smaller firm. Can I do challenge the same that? Rules? Do you? Okay. Yeah, well, please. I challenge that because, you know, again, I, I know a lot of the Dave DeVos and Dan Sievert and those guys, and I talked to them and I would love to have a point counterpoint with them if they were on the phone. But my understanding, I'm no expert. My understanding is the only reason you're saying that and the reason we feel that, and, and the, it's like anything else, if that's what you read in the media all the time. So all the hundreds of two people getting together or four person firms getting together, that's not showing up anywhere, Right. Where does that show up? So I would argue, given just sheer numbers, now the AUM aspect might be exactly right the way you're describing it, right? So large firms are buying huge firms. But I think there's a ton of activity that's not on the radar. I do. I think, and, and Dave, at least when I have conversations with the Daves and Dans of the world, I think they would agree with that. I don't want to speak for them, but I think they would agree with that. Yeah, uh, it wouldn't surprise me, I guess, and you're right. I mean, when we do hear about the activity that's going on, it is uh, the, the larger enterprises acquiring the smaller firms. At the same time, I mean, this is the way that the universe is kind of lining itself up, right? I mean, there are increasingly uh, very active acquirers of large... It's an arms race. Yeah. It's an it's a arms race and a land share grab. Yep. Your creative plannings, your mercers of the world, CI financial, some of the big acquirers. And I'm just wondering if this conversation about culture changes a little bit when you're either in the crosshairs or in the sights of one of those firms, or if you're a leader of one of those firms and, and you're trying to you know acquire as many as you can, as fast as you can. Does this conversation change? I suspect you say it probably shouldn't, but, I, but it probably does, right? Well, I think... Yeah, I, I think that I think, yeah, you're exactly right. It definitely shouldn't. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much control of $80 billion RIA is buying a $1 billion RIA. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how much influence the $1 billion RIA has. However, that doesn't mean that the $1 billion RIA or the path, you know, whatever it is, doesn't do its homework, listens to its voice, ask those questions that we're suggesting you ask, you know, and do all those things. And if there's a fit, great. Right. Cause there's a million different options for them. Not just, I'd still say, listen to your voice, understand culture, revisit your values, you know, see if they align your guiding principles. I think those would be important no matter what size firms are coming together. Because if you're not in a line there, that's where the, the road gets rocky. Yeah. And it doesn't mean the deal might not work out financially for either the buyer or seller, but it just means maybe less collateral damage getting there. Well, when you wrote about the firm that you acquired in Seattle, where the concern was that the folks in Seattle thought they were a small outpost of the larger firm, you know, the 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 small office out in the wilderness and how you went about kind of 
reducing that uh, that thinking. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that gets into this notion of one side, firms not of equal size merging. You've been through it. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I well, what I would say is probably what you would say, Greg, is that we made a huge consorted effort during this is before pandemic. And I'll, I'll talk about life after pandemic where none of that matters anymore because we're all just little boxes on a monitor. But before a pandemic, we were going up. We had leadership going up to Seattle. Oh, maybe once a week, there was somebody from the office and, and we were inviting them down, you know. So we were any of our cultural rituals, I'll call them. Of course, they were included. Of course, we would do things to incorporate collaboration from all offices and have representation from all offices to make sure their voices were equally heard at the table where decisions were being made. Yeah, the single biggest thing, though, that, that all of that stuff helped. But what really the tipping point was when we all as Cynthia said, became boxes on a monitor. One of the, yeah, one of the questions I get asked frequently is what are some of the things from the pandemic that you actually, you know, benefited from or whatever? That was one of them. On the one hand, it broke us apart. On another hand, it put, it put us together in ways that I couldn't have even imagined. And one of the things we will keep is when we do all hands, what used to happen is 30 of us were in one room on a monitor. And then eight were in Seattle on a monitor. And then, you know, five or 10 were in San Francisco on a monitor. We won't do that anymore. We won't put 30 people in a room where that seems like that's the hub and everybody else is kind of these outposts. So that was a really valuable learning. I mean, people really appreciate, you know, not being, not feeling like they're not part of, oh, well, that's where it's all happening. Yeah, no, for sure. That's it's interesting. What else changed about maintaining culture in the pandemic? Because I'll tell you one of the things that I have observed, if you guys remember, when the whole pandemic first came down and everyone was starting to work remotely, this notion of the the Zoom call, the, the video call, the happy hours, Zoom happy hours, little celebrations over Zoom kind of seemed to disappear pretty quickly. Uh, everyone was very excited about them for a while, and then they kind of fell off the map. Did you guys find it difficult to maintain a corporate culture in the the corporate culture that you have in the pandemic? Yeah, d definitely. I'll take that one, Greg. It is an ongoing challenge. And that being said, as Greg mentioned, there are ways that we actually became closer. And, and with Zoom, yes, we are Zoom masters. And we do congregate by virtually now. But we can mix and match groups. And we, we do something where we have these coffee talks where we randomize people and put them in breakout rooms and we might give them a subject. And that is, the hope is that that's replacing what happens when you walk down the hall and you pop your head into, you know, Bob's office and say, hey, how you doing? You know, how are the kids? What'd you do this weekend? So we try to recreate that. And because now that we are multiple offices and multiple locations and we're doing it all virtually, we can do that with everybody. And we've actually created more connection because of that and become more unified. So that's been a, a great 
outcome. Something else that we did, David, is that we invited a, a mental health expert to join one of our all hands and discuss very openly the challenges from working from home and how you, you might be feeling and how you're probably you're not alone in those feelings and giving some good tools to help cope, you know, to encourage our coworkers to learn something new, to think of ways to give back, to try to instigate some positive actions that people can take to better feel connected. She highlights this is never a done deal. I mean, we're still evolving. We're still thinking about it. We're still changing things up and we're still trying things. So we're no experts. There's no there there. But the important thing is our culture and our employees show tremendous gratitude for the effort (laughs) that we we put out to, to do it. Yeah, I mean, the effort is kind of its own indicator of culture, right? You're making. And that's a fantastic idea to do kind of random mix and matches over coffee to replicate that serendipity that often kind of comes in the office environment, yeah. those little moments of conversation. People love that. <laughs> yeah, and it, seems, it, it strikes me that that's much more effective than kind of a force. Okay, everybody show up with a drink in your hand at five o'clock and we'll have a good time for a half an hour and then log off. And people like little groups, you know, groups of three or four. That's a nice conversation pod, as opposed to 50 people that are on a screen, you get lost and people get quiet. Cynthia, you thought something in the book on titles, which I thought was interesting, because when Greg talks about the openness and transparency and non-hierarchical nature of private ocean, you know, titles don't really seem to fit in that. And as a you know, a member squarely in the midst of middle of Gen X generation guy here. I've always thought titles were a little absurd and didn't mean much. You have a different take and you think that uh, increasingly people, maybe titles are important and do care. You know, funny because I, I am I am part of the your Gen X community there and share your thought about titles that in, in general, I don't think they're super important. That being said, I think the next gen, the gen that's coming up, the one right behind us, titles are really important. And they give people a sense of pride and purpose. And, and I think when individuals have those feelings, they, they really understand their role and their contribution. We're sensitive to titles that we give people and make sure that it's a comfortable reflection of who they think they are and what they are contributing to the team. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. I've noticed that uh, generational change as well. And it just, it's just, it's interesting to me, but I, I totally understand how it happens and what it means. You guys talk also a little bit about post-merger when firms do come together, the importance of having these team champions that advocate for the culture that you're trying to build in the organization. Are these people that are kind of organically grown out of the new environment and, and just sort of take up the mantle and take up the flag? Or are you very deliberate about who you appoint as team champions to propagate some of the messages around the culture that you want to disseminate. It's somebody who exemplifies. So we, we, we started uh, Cynthia's idea. We, we created something called the wave private ocean makes sense. Right. And it's this really cool wave. I bought, I bought this glass wave in Hawaii and we decided well, we could do these small waves and create this wave award and this whole thing. And it, it basically is given out periodically to people who best exemplify our cultural, what we aspire to be, right? I mean, ultimately. So when you talk about these, these champions, it's people that, that do that naturally, right? I mean, they, and again, 
all of this is aspirational, right? There's no there, there, right? If you can be good, you can be gooder. That's a word. I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? It's, this is one of those things that you can always strive. But if you exemplify courtesy, respect, hard work, take care of the client, take care of each other, all these kinds of qualities that a lot of people talk about, but then day to day don't really do when they do them. I mean, that's what we aspire to be. And so we talk about it. We, you know, cause we figure if we're delivering amazing for our clients and we're delivering amazing for ourselves and we work hard, those three things, then the rest will take care of itself. Now it doesn't mean we don't set financial goals and we don't measure everything and do all those things that you do in a business. But we figure if we can get the first three right. <laughs> so those, that's what we look for when we talk about who are those people and then elevate them and highlight them and celebrate them and point to why they're being celebrated. And then the next person, good, celebrate it, highlight it, right? Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I, well, I think the book is fantastic. I'm halfway through it, but it's really, there's some actionable steps in there, some lists, some real sort of detailed thinking around what I, until this conversation, have always thought was a kind of a vague nomenclature. And so I really appreciate uh, you guys talking to me about it. Anything else, Cynthia, you want to add or, or Greg? I think this book should probably be required reading for anyone contemplating a merger or acquisition in the RIA space. Any final thoughts? No, I I agree, David. I think everyone should have this as required reading. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and appreciate your enthusiasm for it. Yeah, and this has been wonderful. So thank you for inviting us. Yeah, no, I just want to say appreciate, David, your consideration and have us on. I would just say that people spend a lot of time in business focusing on what they think is the most important thing, whatever, their definition of success is to get financial results, to get these different things. And, you know, I've lived my life benefiting amazingly and tremendously by focusing on people and this type of thing, absolutely with every intention for financial success and growth and all that, but these other things. And I just would say that the, the rewards are clear, especially as we continue to get into a more and more competitive, as the industry is more and more competitive, right? We're a cottage industry where when I started, it was super easy to hire people. It was super easy to get clients. Honestly, for the first 10 years I was in this business, you know, marketing, I did a little bit of cold calling and then I got referrals out of, you know, Wazoo and I was off to the races. That is not true anymore. We are a mature industry with competitors everywhere and all that kind of stuff. And consumers have choices. So the point is, if you don't run and have a really good organization, it will, it will ultimately reflect on the client experience and they have choices. So that's, that's why I think it's such an important topic. Well, guys, this has been fantastic. Thanks very much. We're over our time, but I, I really appreciate yeah, you talking absolutely. to me. And uh, hopefully we'll see you all on the road live and in person at some point in the near future. Great. Thank you so much, David. And this has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.